Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This month we're covering March 2020 and we've got quite a lot to go over. Um, This is Colin Yeo, I'm joined by CJ McKinney. We're covering some EU law material. We've got some fairly involved appeals law stuff on whether a human rights claim generates a right of appeal or not. Um, We're going to cover a few human rights issues around family life and settlement, briefly touch on some protection claim issues, including a Supreme Court case, and then we're ending with mentions for the EU settlement scheme and the upcoming immigration bill. If you'd like to claim um, CPD for listening to this podcast, then head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training, and you can sign up as a member there. Great. Let's uh, start with uh, EU law, as you say, and an important case on benefits. So the, the law on when an EU migrant can claim benefits in this country is kind of specialism in itself. We don't often cover it just, just for lack of time and capacity, really. But there has been a significant development there. It's on the legal test for whether an EU citizen is considered a worker after they've uh, lost their job. So retained worker status. And that can be important in claiming certain benefits. So in this case, the lady concerned was Polish. She needed housing benefit and she could only keep it if she had this retained worker status after being unemployed for over six months. Now, the UK government has always insisted that people in this situation need to show that they have a, quote, genuine chance of being engaged, end quote. But that test, it turns out, is unlawful. It has no place in EU law, according to the Upper Tribunal. And that case is KH and Berry MBC 2020 UKUT 50 AAC. So that's a win for the Child Poverty Action Group, which brought the case. But Colin, I think this this genuine chance of being engaged test, it exists in different places in the law, right? So it's important, I think, to stress it's only been struck down in the context of this retained worker status. Yeah, it's derived from an old um, EU law case. I think it's Antonissen, um, although I might have um, I might have gotten that wrong. I've just realised I hadn't looked it up before the podcast. Um, but I think it, it's an example of case law um, being kind of incorporated into EU law, but also superseded. And um, the the regulations kind of you know, draw on the case, but but actually the the terms of the directive have gone a bit beyond that and are more generous. And it's basically a mistake that I, I'm not sure that I'd actually spotted this. Um, I sort of con- confess that um, you know being familiar with the old test, I hadn't really realised that it had been superseded in this way. So it was quite an interesting um, interesting case to to read. And and yeah, it, it, it's good news um, for those who find that they do need to rely on um, on, on mainstream benefits and unemployment benefits. And you know, sadly, it, it's particularly on point at the moment. And of course, you know, there are EU citizens um, who haven't yet applied for settled status um, who might need to be able to prove that they are still qualified in this way. And just just for the avoidance of doubt, you know, making an application for settled status uh, would bring somebody within the sort of eligibility for these benefits anyway. Um, but if they haven't done that yet, or they're needing to um, prove his sort of, sort of historic eligibility, then then this is a useful case. So that's another advantage of the new settled status, right? That as soon as you have it, you can get benefits without having to jump through as many hoops, perhaps. Yes, yes. And um, of course, you know, one of the reasons we've reported this is that um, it's helpful for um, historic immigration status as well. So now I've dealt with plenty of cases over the years where um, it's argued that somebody 
hasn't acquired permanent residence um, because they've got gaps in their employment and so on. There's a te- there's a question then about whether they had a genuine chance of being engaged and so on and so forth. And um, this uh, yeah, this case is helpful for showing that the test is a relatively um, straightforward and um, sort of objective one to apply. Um, whether that's still relevant in that many cases, given the settlement scheme, I'm not sure, but it, it could potentially be. Absolutely. Let's stay then in the world of EU law, but the context of this next case is criminal deportation. Basically, the finding is that the Home Office can't apply its deport first appeal later policy to EU citizens, or at least it it, it must carry out a proportionality assessment first, which makes it harder, I think, to get away with deporting someone before they've had the chance to appeal. That is the case of Hafiz, 2020 EWHC 437 admin. And another example, Colin, of it being much harder to deport EU citizens. Yeah, it, although I mean, this, so we're going to come back to this case in, in just a minute as a different aspect of it. Um, this is on the, um, the sort of one of the prior stages to deportation. So this is where the Home Office says that somebody's going to be deported and prior to their appeal, they're going to be removed um, and then they can potentially come back to uh, represent themselves or give evidence at their at their appeal hearing. And the Home Office has taken this really bizarre stance that EU law doesn't apply to the question of whether the person can be expected to leave the UK pending their appeal. I've seen this myself in, in litigation as well. And um, this case makes it clear that actually EU law does apply. And the decision to deport and the decision to certify that they have to leave the UK um, in the meantime isn't the same decision. There has to be a different set of... Um, so it has to be differently assessed by the Home Office with EU law applying in both both those stages. So it's it's quite a useful decision. It's not a particularly surprising outcome, but um, you know it, it, it's helpful in these cases. As you mentioned, there is another case involving the same Mr. Hafiz that was also reported this month. This time it was in the Court of Appeal, and it was the decision not on this preliminary matter about uh, removal pending appeal, but on the substantive appeal against deportation the the two cases seem to have been running in parallel and the issue in the court of appeal was mr fees's length of residence in the uk you have enhanced protection against being deported as a new citizen if you've been living here for 10 years or more and mr hafiz had been in the uk for 10 or 11 years the, the facts are a bit unclear but only if you count his three and a half years in prison and the first tier tribunal had given him the benefit of the doubt on this point and, and proceeded as though he had the 10 years. But the Court of Appeal has says it was wrong to do so. And prison time certainly does not count towards your 10 year period. Fair enough, Colin? Yeah, and it, it's helpful to have clarity on that. Again, it's not particularly surprising that that should be the case. It's it's an interesting case. I know the facts are horrific. I mean, he did, he'd done some really bad stuff. Um, and... The Court of Appeal suggests that uh, what he'd done would meet the the, the top test, the 10 years residence test for imperative grounds of public security. Um, There's not a lot of case law on that. Um, I'm not sure whether this kind of um, sexual offence combined with the kind of aggravating factors that that go even beyond that um, necessarily would have expected that to meet the sort of imperative grounds of public security. But, you know, it, it's an indication that that's the, that's the view that senior judges take. I don't think that's binding in this case because they go on and find that actually it wasn't the imperative grounds that applied in this case because he hadn't made the 10 years 
um, residents that would have brought him into that top level test. So it was just serious grounds that applied, in fact, on the on the facts of the case. Um, so it, it's it's useful for clarifying how you reach the ten years. Time in prison doesn't count. Basically, it's an indicator of what might count as um, imperative grounds. Um, but in fact, on on the facts of the case, it's a serious grounds case. Absolutely. Turning then to appeals law, and as you mentioned, there are a couple of relatively involved cases about when you get the right of appeal from a Home Office decision to refuse an application that has a human rights element. And the first scenario is where someone asks for indefinite leave to remain and gets limited leave on human rights grounds instead. So is that the refusal of a human rights claim? And the answer is no, according to the case of Mujahid 2020 UKUT 85 IAC. And that, again, seems unsurprising, I would venture, although, Colin, you, you seemed more sympathetic to the argument that Mr. Mujahid was making. Yeah, I know. I'm getting a bit frustrated by the tribunal kind of forcing people into judicial review proceedings when, frankly, it looks like there the, the, certainly is an arguable case for a right of appeal in this situation like this. And, um, you know, it is... To my mind, if, if you apply for something and you don't get it, that's a refusal. Um, so I think there's a, the, you know, there was a strong argument that, um, that that should generate a right of appeal. And certainly a right of appeal is far preference to, far, it's, it's far better for the, the, the applicant than, um, than judicial review proceedings. Um, so it's a shame to see that remedy not being available here. And you know, that's what we see in the next case as well. Yeah, the next case, the context to that is where people sort of bolt on a human rights claim to an application that doesn't normally attract a right of appeal. Uh, that, that terminology of bolting on is my own invention, so it may not uh, accurately reflect the legal picture. But um, but if you do that, then you can make sure that when the Home Office says no to you, then because there's a human rights bit in it, the matter can then go before an independent judge for an appeal. What this new case suggests is that that won't necessarily work anymore because the Home Office is entitled to simply ignore the bolted-on human rights claim, just not engage with it because it's not done through the application form that they want it to be done through. And so then that refusal won't be appealable. And that's the case of MY, Refusal of Human Rights Claim, Pakistan, 2020, UK, UT, 89, IAC. And that's bad news, we think, Colin. Yeah, and it's particularly bad news in this specific sort of factual context of um, victims of domestic abuse, because for some bizarre reason, the Home Office has taken the view that they're not human rights claims when they obviously, obviously are. You know, they're very um, compassionate cases quite often, and they're about staying in the UK. So it's it's hard to see how you can rationally say that's not um, a, a human rights situation. Um, but it's also a sort of wider problem on the tribunal basically saying that it's not willing to judge for itself what is or isn't a human rights claim and therefore allowing the Home Office to act as the gatekeeper to the right of appeal, which is deeply problematic when the Home Office is one of the parties to the appeal as well. And we know the Home Office isn't minded to allow appeals um, where, wherever they can, basically. Um, so it, it, it's it's quite a problematic case for appellants. It's particularly problematic in this context of domestic violence, but it's problematic in a, in a wider sense. Again, it's another example of the tribunal um, shirking rather than working when it comes to its own jurisdiction. Absolutely. I, I think Nat said in her article that they might be looking to appeal that, so we will obviously report if there's better news on that front in future. Next up, uh, still within appeals law, there is 
Another case that's helpful to the Home Office, in fact, uh, this one's saying there's no duty of candour on the department in statutory appeals. Uh, there is such a duty in judicial review proceedings, but not in a straight appeal. Citation NIMO, or NIMO perhaps, uh, appeals duty of disclosure gamma 2020 UKUT 88 IAC. Yeah, not a lot to say about this one. I mean, it'd be, it, it, it arises with um, sham marriage um, interview disclosures, and it would be um, wrong and extremely unfortunate if anybody is to read this as saying that the Home Office doesn't have to disclose the interview notes from a sham uh, marriage interview, because that's certainly not what the tribunal is saying in this case. All they're saying is that the formal um, duty of candour that applies in judicial review cases doesn't apply in appeals cases. And they seem to be going out of their way, rather, to put the boot into ex-president McCloskey, which is becoming its own little genre of, of tribunal case law, frankly. For old McCloskey, yeah. Um, OK, some some good news, though, to conclude this appeals law section of our uh, programme. There's another reported decision which finds that the ban on raising new matters in an appeal without Home Office permission does not apply in the upper tribunal. So the ban on new matters does hold in the first tier tribunal, but if you get to the upper, then new matters are in play. So that case is Birch, uh, 2020 UKUT 86 IAC. Is that, is that something that would be useful in many cases, Colin? People want to, to raise new matters? It might be useful occasionally, not often. And um, it's a result which can perhaps be explained by the, the preening comments about um, being a tribunal of a court of record um, and, and, and so on and distinguishing the upper tribunal from from being a mere tribunal it's a bit it's a bit bonkers frankly but and it, it, it will be helpful in, in some cases hopefully so um, so, so very much to be welcomed good Let's talk about application fees then, and a quick note on the immigration health surcharge. Uh, it's going up again, basically. It's £400 at the moment. The Conservatives promised during the election last year to increase that to £624, and we now know the date that that will happen. It is 1 October 2020. Draft regulations authorising the increase uh, exist, and that's where we get the date from. Um, although they are still in draft and have been for a while, so maybe there's a slight chance that they won't be passed. They'll be delayed with coronavirus and general chaos. Maybe. It could could happen. Yeah, it could happen. I mean, we, we, at the moment, we're expecting that to happen. Something would have to change for it not to happen, if you see what I mean. Um, but, uh, but that, you know, that, that there might be a change. It may be that um, the government takes the view that um, it's not a good idea to go ahead with that, that increase. But I wouldn't hold my breath. Absolutely. We'll, we'll obviously keep a, keep a weather eye on that. Also on fees, there have been some tweaks to nationality fees that John Vassiliou has covered. The most significant, I think, is in relation to children who can't get British citizenship because their mother is still married to someone other than the child's biological father. The British Nationality Act treats such children as being the child of the mother's husband. And so if he's not British, but the real father is British, then the child can lose out on British citizenship, which is bad. Uh, And that whole setup has been declared unlawful by the High Court, but but the legislation hasn't been changed yet. So there's still families in this situation. They can apply to be registered as for the child to be registered as British in this scenario. And now what we have is a a new fee waiver for that registration. So again, families in the scenario can apply to have the registration fee waived. And if that sounds like one of your clients, you can 
check the Immigration immigration and Nationality Fees Amendment Number 2 Regulations 2020, which came into force on the 6th of April. Cool. To human rights, and then some interesting cases here. Um, One uh, described by free movement contributor Chris Cole as important, and as he's a part-time judge, I am going to defer to his view. It is about a young man from Bangladesh who has lived in foster care here in the UK since 2013. And he applied for leave to remain on the basis of his human right to a family life, pointing to his foster carers as his family. Uh, the lower tribunal said that foster carers didn't count, essentially, as, as family. But the Court of Appeal has now said, no, you can have a family life with foster carers. It, it'll depend on the facts. And the case is Udin 2020 EWCA Civ 338. So, Colin, that's obviously good news for people in foster care specifically, but does the judgment tell us more about the approach to family life more generally? Yeah, it's a useful it's a useful case for reminding us that family life is quite a complex um, quite a complex concept, and it applies to a wide range of scenarios. And reading the the, the bits of the upper tribunal um, judgment which are quoted here, it's astonishing that the, the tribunal could say this about a foster care relationship, but you know. Uh, there you go. Uh, immigration judges aren't familiar with family proceedings, and um, you'd certainly never see any kind of family law professional ever saying anything remotely like this. Um, as in, as, so what he said was something about, oh, it's a commercial transaction between the council and the the foster care. Yeah, there's no nothing. Yeah, so there's no substance to it, and the article eight isn't engaged. It's just, just you know, so otherworldly as to be really bizarre. So really welcome to see the the court of appeal. Um, overturning that and and um, and saying that's you know that's not the right approach. Also, some helpful stuff here, as, as Chris has said about um, in the blog post about Lucas directions and making the point that just because you're lying about one thing doesn't mean you're necessarily lying about other things as well. Um, so it's 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 an all round useful case, and um, I think it, it's a useful thing to to say um, that it, you know. Ernest Ryder will be will be missed as well. He's um, retiring from the Court of Appeal. He's been the senior president of tribunals for a few years now. He was always a very thoughtful judge in the family division in the High Court. Um, so yeah, I think we'll miss him. Yeah, off to become an Oxford Don, I believe. So we'll move then to a family life case in the context of deportation again, and the uh, context here is one of the exceptions to automatic deportation. It's where the person concerned has a quote, genuine and subsisting relationship with a qualifying partner, end quote. And the question in this next case was who counts as a partner, as distinct from maybe a, a mere girl, girlfriend or boyfriend, if, if the relationship is not long-standing, they're not married, they don't live together, when do you graduate to the partner status? And the judgment is Bucci, Part 5A, Partner Albania, 2020, UK, UT, 87, IAC. And what did the court decide, Colin? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, it's 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 this is a good example, isn't it? This of um, Parliament legislating something very specific, and um, you know, using these apparently clear terms, but then requiring judges to get into ridiculously kind of nitty gritty assessments of personal relationships in order to then apply these supposedly sort of clear criteria. And the, the problem is that the the term partner isn't defined in the primary legislation. Um, so the, the question is, uh, the Home Office is arguing in this case that the definition from the immigration rules should be used instead. Um, app, uh, the, the, the appellant is saying, no, that's um, that's not the right approach. Um, and the tribunal kind of sides with the appellant and says, 
Um, no, it's it's formally you don't get the immigration rules dictating the meaning of primary leg- legislation, but then they just say, well, we'll probably follow broadly that approach anyway. So it, it's 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 a bit of a kind of um, how many angels can you count on the the head of a pin kind of type type judgment in my view. So then a quick note on a challenge to the policy on restricted leave. And restricted leave is where the Home Office can't remove the person from the UK because to do so would be a massive human rights breach. But perhaps the person is an unsavoury customer. I think in this case, he he had a terrorism conviction in France. The Home Office really, really, really doesn't like them. So they get a short stint of restricted leave that's renewed every so often. And there is a general policy against granting indefinite leave in such cases you just get was it two and a half years or whatever at the time and that policy was challenged in this case which is our mbt and secretary of states restricted leave ilr disability discrimination 2019 uk ut 414 iac and the upper tribunal rejected that challenge um convinced of the reasoning in that one well it, it's 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 hard to challenge the home office in these cases because it's there's no clear Article 8 right to permanent residence as opposed to temporary residence, basically. But the facts of this case are pretty stark. He's he's been in the UK since '99. It's 20 years residence at the um, at the time that the um, the facts were being considered. And as Nick Mason memorably wrote in a previous blog post, you know these people are are the irremovables. They they're not going anywhere. It, surely they should just be allowed to um, get permanent residence and and stop having to kind of make these um, interminable temporary residence applications um, because there's no prospects of of removal ever taking place basically. And certainly on the facts of this case, you know that that that's clearly the case. Um, but you know it's up to the Home Office. Judges aren't willing to interfere, and um, so this guy's probably going to be applying for temporary leave for the rest of his life. It looks like. Yeah, similar enough story then in the next case, which is about the Home Office policy on discretionary leave. Uh, And that policy states that people who have this kind of leave can normally, uh, quote unquote, get indefinite leave to remain after six years. And the legal issue here was, can the Home Office ever refuse indefinite leave to people on discretionary leave? Uh, The answer, yes, Uh, normally doesn't mean always. Um, So again, the courts are reluctant to, to... interfere with the Home Office application of, of these sort of discretionary policies. The citation, uh, Ellis and Secretary of State, discretionary leave policy, supplementary reasons, 2020 UK UT 82 IAC. Yeah, and in this case, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the future because the what, what had triggered the refusal to just grant um, permanent residence um, ILR as they normally would was some fairly minor criminal offending in the UK. Um so uh, it'd be interesting to see how the Home Office responds next time around. It, are they, you know, it looks like they're having to make up the policy as they go, basically. Are they going to apply, force him to apply for temporary leave again and again and again and become one of the irremovables? Or is there some kind of tariff approach that they're going to f- uh, apply where after a certain number of years, he then finally qualifies for um, permanent residence? Or, or are they just literally going to make it up as they go, which is what they seem to have been doing um, on this case so far? And you, you can see the sort of rationale, but it also illustrates the um, the need for there to be some kind of policy in cases like this, which there, there isn't really at the moment. A, finally then, there's a case that's got a lot of attention when we wrote it up on the site, a lot of, a lot of clicks, um, although we're not sure necessarily that it's a, it's a massive deal at this point. It, it suggests that Compensation may be available for long delays in issuing residence permits. 
Uh, so that's Husson and Secretary of State 2020 EWCA Civ 329. So Mr. Husson got leave to remain in May 2016, but he didn't get his physical biometric permit confirming his leave to remain until June 2018. So over two years later, and in the meantime, he wasn't able to work because he didn't have a permit and he's now trying to get compensation. It's a bit of a complicated case because he seems to be trying to sort of attach a civil claim to a judicial review and the courts don't like that. Um, The Court of Appeal has said in this ruling that his case can go to a full hearing, hence the excitement among people who've maybe been in a similar position. But it might be calling that he he loses at the full hearing and there's there's nothing to see here, ultimately. Yeah, and, and what the Court of Appeal here is saying is there is an argument to be had, basically, which the upper tribunal had said there wasn't. Um, so it'll, it'll, it'll go forward and there will be a, a, a final decision which will write up um, as and when it comes out. But certainly, you know, it, it's it's promising that at least the court thought that there was something, um, there, there was an issue here to be decided as opposed to um, to, to none at all. But, you know, having said that, the facts were pretty stark and I've never come across somebody um, who's been waiting for um, a, a, a BRP for, for that long um, and has been that severely inconvenienced by the Home Office. Um, but, you know, maybe that's just because I haven't come across any. Maybe there's there's loads of people around like this. Um, so the, the, the facts were pretty unusual. Um, but, but, you know, it's good news that it's going to go ahead. On asylum and protection claims, we wanted to very briefly mention a case from the European Court of Human Rights called ASN and the Netherlands. Basically, the court ruled that there is no general risk of Article 3 of the Human Rights Convention being breached if Sikhs from Afghanistan are sent back to that country. Now, that judgment was handed down in late February. We covered it on free movement in early March. And a couple of weeks later, the main Sikh temple in Kabul was attacked by terrorists and 25 out of the remaining 1,000 Afghan Sikhs were killed in that attack. On a more upbeat note, there's a protection case on refugee family reunion. And this featured a young man who wanted his parents and siblings to join him here in the UK. So he, he couldn't use the normal reunion route because that only covers I think it's spouses and children but the upper tribunal granted his uh, application or the family's application outside the immigration rules and saying it was the sort of exceptional or compelling case that warranted such a grant Uh, so good news Colin although Alison Harvey who wrote up the case does comment that it's still a high bar for for people in this situation yeah it's not it's not straightforward this isn't opening some floodgates or something like that it's not straightforward to win on these kind of um, cases but you know with very strong facts and with sympathetic judges and perhaps and this is maybe me being a bit cynical but perhaps with the the sympathy that Syrians um, attract you know that that might be feasible in the in, in some cases. So yeah, it's it's good news, but but of of fairly sort of limited good news. Fair enough. Yeah, a, a Syrian eighteen year old boy. Uh, the case is called KF and others. Uh, it's on the the website if you want to know more. Uh, a Supreme Court case then on human trafficking. Uh, as people probably know, being recognised by the government as a victim of trafficking gets you various kinds of support. And there's a system for deciding whether someone is rec- is a victim called the National Referral Mechanism. And what this case was about is the status of National refer- Referral Mechanism decisions in immigration appeals. Because someone who has been turned down by the NRM might still be fighting a legal case to stay in the UK. And being a trafficking victim would be relevant to that case. So they want to argue that they're a victim, even though the system has said they aren't. Uh, so can the immigration judge decide for himself or herself if someone is a trafficking victim disagreeing with the national referral mechanism potentially? And the Supreme Court says yes, basically. 
Yeah, and I, I haven't really got anything to add on. It's an interesting case. Um, it's it's a biggie because it's the Supreme Court, but you know, trafficking is a relatively niche area of practice. And you've done you've done a good job summarising that, CJ. Very good. Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now. Just a couple of other items briefly. There has been a statement of changes to the immigration rules uh, in March, and that took effect on sixth of April. Um, it's mostly about the the EU settlement scheme, and the tech the changes are really quite technical. Um, Surinder Singh, there is a clarification on the cutoff date that might be important. Um, probably not worth going through because there's lots of changes to lots of sections. Was there anything you spotted, Colin, that was important? No, I mean, it's worth you have a look at the blog post if um, if if any of these apply to you. So it covers Surinder Singh cases, um, absences from the UK that gets um, a, a, a bit modified. Something on unrecognised adoptions um, following the SM Algeria case. Um, something on McCarthy cases. That's where you've got um, a, an EU citizen who's become a British citizen later. Um, also on expired documents for durable partners and dependent relatives. Um, people excluded from refugee or humanitarian protection. And then there's a few other sort of minor amendments as well. So, um, yeah, do take a look. Um, you, you, you'll, you'll be struck by the slightly pained tone in which Chris DeSera wrote, wrote up the changes because um, he, he has to go through, um, you know, without any kind of track changes, the, the Home Office keeps on substituting the entire thing, meaning that it's very difficult to spot what's changed between one version and the next. Um, but, you know, he's done a really good job at picking out what those updates are. Yeah, absolutely. Very valuable technical analysis. Uh, and finally, for this month, uh, it's easy to forget what with everything going on, um, that there is an immigration bill before Parliament. Um, it is, we understand, still going ahead. It's having its second reading on Tuesday, the 21st of April. And we think that will be the first virtual sitting of Parliament, uh, the ultimate in remote working call. Yeah, really, really big Zoom call, I sort of imagine. I, don't, I have no idea how that was that's going to work. But what, what it does mean is that we'll actually see the text of the new bill, which we're expecting to be a lot like the last one, which which was, um, it lapsed because of the general election. Um, but, you know, if there's anything interesting or surprising about it, then um, obviously we'll be writing that up on the blog in due course. Right, that's it from CJ and for me for this month. We'll be back next month. We hope that's been helpful. Goodbye. <laughs>